So this is the word of God coming from Psalm 122. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem built as a city. They're bound firmly together to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord. I was decreed for Israel to give thanks to the name of the Lord, where thrones for judgment were set and thrones for the house of David. Pray for peace of Jerusalem, that they may secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within the towers. For my brothers and companions sake, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. So we all say, for all flesh, Amen and amen. Go ahead and grab a seat. So good morning. Welcome to Redstone Church. My name is Spencer. It's really good to open up God's word this morning and to share with you. Um, You see behind me, there is a new sermon series. It is called Why We Gather. We will spend the entire semester asking this question. So why did you show up this morning? This is what we call the gathering. So why? Right? Why did you do it? Was it out of obligation? Was it out of religious ritual? Right? Those are the types of things that we're saying. Um, There are many really good reasons not to go to church. Right? There's a lot of good ones. Some of our brothers and sisters are invalid and are literally unable to, to go. Some of us can't drive and need other people to take us. There are the people who are sick and aren't able to make it. Some of you have a once in a lifetime opportunity to go and travel and you literally can't make it back. There are, really, there are a lot of really good reasons not to go to church. However, we've seen something following the pandemic. Missiologists say that one third of all church goers in the middle of the pandemic called it quits. One third of them just stopped going to church. And the question is, why? So what is the motivation to come? But also what is the motivation not to show up? But why start back in the first place? So our ambition this semester, we've got about 10 weeks together in which we will travel down this one main question of why we have done the thing that we're doing now. Why have we gathered? And we want a proper biblical answer of why Christians, people who follow after Jesus, why we gather Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. And we've been doing so for 2,000 years. We were joking in the back. It's like, well, it's because my mom told me that I needed to do this. So that's the proper motivation, right? Mom told me to. But what is the biblical um, answer to why we should do it? Because we firmly believe that God wants you to make gathering a priority. We think that God has given us a mandate. He's given us an opportunity. Some people have even called it a grace, a piece of common grace in which what you and I are experiencing right now that we cannot experience otherwise. But we want to believe, well, we believe that God wants you to make gathering a priority. So we hope that you stick around this semester. If not, just, you know, give us six weeks or so. And if, you know, we haven't convinced you, then that's, that's okay. 
So back to the missiologists, the people who look at the church and the condition of the church and give us all of the stats of the state of the church, like Pew and Bar- Barna. They say that more, there are more people that identify as faithful believers in Christ Jesus. And those numbers seem not to be waning uh, a whole lot, right? It's moving a little bit, but it seems like they're the people who identify themselves as Christ followers, that those, th- those numbers are staying pretty steady. However, those people, there are fewer people who identify as regular church attenders. And so where one line is staying pretty steady, there's one that's starting to drop. There are people that are identifying themselves as Christ followers. But as far as regular church attenders, that number is starting to fall over and over. And that gap is widening pretty fast. Some say that it was the pandemic's fault. It's not. The pandemic was not the cause. However, it was probably an accelerant of some source in order to push us down a road that we may not have seen. So when you sit down, right, and you look at the the beginning of the year, let's just say we're in January, we're making New Year's resolutions, we're trying to just get all of our ducks in the row and, and forecast there. As you evaluate your year, How do you or how would you ensure participation on a Sunday morning as often as possible for you and your family? Does that even cross your mind? So today, our job is to really challenge, right? To press in on your heart. And you're, I bet you're all going, shoo, I'm glad I made it here today, right? It's all those other guys that didn't make it today. They're the ones who feel really feeling guilty. So today is not about guilt, but just to really press and to ask the questions why. So what is it or what is the motivation to do that? What is the value of this? Or to put it another way, are there guidelines or are there parameters Are there values that you have set aside as boundaries to say, this is why I do this or don't? The pandemic was interesting days, right? Um, There was this thing called virtual church. Does anybody remember those days? You know, when you were staring at a screen and you were literally in your PJs and you're trying to get your kids to settle down and they wouldn't, right? Those are the days. But this, this idea of virtual church came into reality for all of us. And so what we had to do, right, in those early days, there was something that happened culturally that may have had unintended consequences, Because what virtual church did was convince an entire generation away from the local gathering. We thought it was only about information. It was only about singing songs and praying prayers and hearing uh, sermons. But what we forgot is that there's real laughter that happens in a moment like this. There's real sadness and prayer requests and prayers to be interceded for. There's truly the tasting of bread and wine on our tongues and in our stomachs. There's this idea that we could all respond in some way, even by standing and sitting together in unison. And for the virtual world, we were just able to see it with with me and my family. We needed to go virtual. However, it it did something to our psyche. So why did you show up? this morning? Was there a biblical something in your heart or was it just a rhythm in which you go? A lot of us know that we're just supposed to do that and yet the biblical motivation has more to do with delight than it does duty. 
Now, to an obligation, sure. A command, absolutely. We'll see that even in our text. But it has to do with delight as much. And so let's start defer- defining our terms. So let's uh, start with this idea of the idea of church. If you're a Bible nerd, you, I gave you a Strong's number. That's 1557 if you want to do some more research on your own. But here is just brass tacks here. Here's your definition. This is for the idea of ecclesia. Ecclesia is the word that we use for church, right? Or the assembly or the gathering, okay? So that's the E word there, ecclesia. And so the definition is on a secular level, a gathering of citizens called out from their homes into some public place, also known as an assembly. That is the definition of ecclesia in the secular sense. However, we have adopted this idea of ecclesia, this idea of church, and this is a group of Christians gathered for worship in a religious meeting. All right, and so this idea of moving from one place to another place in order to assemble with other people, that's the movement. That's the purpose of this idea of doing that. This term, ecclesia, used in the second uh, definition, this is used 111 times in the New Testament alone. As you can tell, as you would imagine, uh, the book of Acts and 1 Corinthians has the most usages, but 111 times. As one Acts 29 pastor said, an old guy who's already retired, he says, Sunday is the greatest day of the week. My question for us is, is Sunday the greatest day of the week. And it may not be. It may be. But the question is why? So I'm not trying to get us to attend more, right? This is not like a roll call or anything like this. I want us to biblically understand why we do this and do what we do. So point number one, the idea of loving your church. You see that in verse uh, number six. It says that uh, the loving church that you may be secure who love you. That's in verse six, this idea of love, to love your church, that you may be secure in all these things. May they be secure who love you. This idea of love comes first. At the end of your membership uh, uh, process at Redstone Church, we gift you with a book. And it's a book by Tony Morita with this as the title, Love Your Church. And he's just asked in the introduction of that church, do you love the church, right? It's just a simple question, but is it true? Because the word love in this passage has more to do with marriage as it does with anything else. This idea that there's some kind of commitment there. So it's as if David, who is the author of this psalm, it's as if he is head over hills in love with whatever he is approaching. There's some kind of something that's happening in front of him, that's unfolding in front of him that he cannot wait to be a part of. And so in this poetry and in this emotive language, you see this love start brimming over with this excitement and this, this thrill that is happening when he is, literally has his feet at the edge of Jerusalem. There's a short essay from John Michel, and he's and he entitled it Fireside Wisdom. And so in this essay, uh, John was, uh, Michel says that uh, he is saddened that this idea that the fireplace has gone from the center of the house. 
He says that the fireplace, right, has been displaced. Where once, uh, for hundreds, if not thousands of years, it was the fireplace that was at the very middle. It's just the hearth that was at the very center of the, of the home. And he says, and what he's trying to uh, convince us is that part of the craziness of our world is because the fireplace is gone, right? Now he has all kinds of reasons. We won't get into it there. But it's some kind of playful analogy of like what is happening all around us. Well, what happens when you displace the fireplace in the middle of the home with something else? More likely a screen or something like that. He goes on to say that the fire... It was not just there to warm you. The fire was not just there to like emanate heat on a cold day. But the fireplace was a symbol of so much more. You see, as you gathered around a fireplace and you were warmed, there were things like laughter and storytelling and tells of of family history and uh, togetherness and connectedness that happened around the fire. You see, the fire was the symbol of something that corresponded with the house. And so the question here is, with this idea of at the center of our worship, there is something that we engage in. And when you pull that back, you may get warmth in other places, but what is at the very center of our home? He goes on to say that Latin, uh, the idea of focus is, the, the, is Latin for the name of central fireplace. It is that strong, is what is our focus, is what's in the middle. The psalmist David knew nothing about fireplaces in the center of homes. But in the psalm, Psalm David gives us, or King David gives us a psalm that is on a journey. There are these pilgrims that are walking from their homes. Remember our definition of leaving your homes and walking towards something? These pilgrims were leaving their homes and approaching Jerusalem in order to worship God. That's what they were going to do. Family members and family households and communities all going to Jerusalem in order to do this. Psalm 122 is in the middle of this entire collection of psalms called the Songs of Ascent. It starts in Psalm 120, it goes all the way to 34. And all of this is this idea that we are going and we're going to see something that we haven't seen before and it's thrilling. And what David is doing with song after song as a song is that the people are preparing their hearts for something. They're preparing their hearts for their eyes to see something. And in this particular song, It was to be sung as soon as your feet crossed the threshold of the gates of Jerusalem and you were in the city at first. This is what you have here. Literal boots on the ground, soles of your feet crossing a threshold out of the wilderness, through a gate and into Jerusalem. And this excitement and this thrilling and this kind of emotion is what happens when the pilgrims do that. The song is of a first-person perspective, a first-person point of view, because your point of view of why you engage a worship service is so very important. I know what you're saying. Sounds uh, um, a lot, very Jewish to me. Like, is there a Is there a Jerusalem or is there a temple or are we the people of God? Like what is going on here? 
And it's interesting to see the movement and the pilgrims happening in the Songs of Ascent is also mirrored in the New Testament, where people are leaving their villages and leaving their huts and approaching synagogues and engaging places of worship. And so this movement has been of the people of God forever. And so is it overly Jewish? Yes. However, is it overly about worship? Absolutely. And so point number two is this idea that there are three audiences, right? There are three people going on even in the first verse of uh, Psalm 122. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of, of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. And so of course there are three audiences, right? There's a personal pronoun that's involved, right? There is someone else that's involved, this you that's happening. And then of course the Lord himself. And so let's, let's go through these ideas. Um, but before, let me just ask you a couple of questions. When's the last time that you took your kids to an ice cream shop? Have you seen their faces, right? Do you understand the flavors? Do you understand like what they see when they put their nose on the glass and they're looking down in there and they're like, oh, I want monster cookie or, oh, I love Superman or, oh, I just love plain vanilla or whatever is going on. Like what that is, have, when's the last time you saw your kids light up in a moment like this? Okay, you may not like ice cream. When's the last time you came home, right, and were greeted at the door by a dog, right? There's well, there's tails that are waggling, right? And there's a little like, mm, 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 I don't know what that is, right? But there's, it's not a bark, it's not a whimper, it's something in between because there's an exchange going on. The puppy or the dog loves you and wants to be petted by you, right? And so there's this exchange, this welcome at home. Now you may not like ice cream, right? You may not like dogs, right? Okay, so when's the last time you saw a child on Christmas morning? right? On top of some staircase or you were all on Christmas morning on top of the staircase and they're just brimming over with excitement because there's something downstairs and it's amazing, right? So what does ice cream and dogs and a day of anticipation, what does it all have in common? This idea of gladness. In Psalm 122, there is this overarching emotional theme of gladness. I was glad. I don't know what the top 10 gladness, gladiest, glad, gladliestness. All right, let's just keep on going with uh, suffixes. All right, so um, um, let's just, well, I don't know what your top 10 most glad things are in life. I'm guessing that church service may or may not make it onto your top 10. But that's not the case with King David. There's something that he sees in the gathering that is so wonderful or mysterious that he is actually glad when he gets invited into this. The reformer named John Calvin, he would open every single service at his church in Geneva by quoting this psalm. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Because he wanted the people of God that he led to understand that this, whatever is happening here, now this is something equated with ice cream, dogs, and days of anticipation. What you are experiencing now should bring gladness to your heart. So what happens when it became an obligation? 
What happens in your heart when you're not so glad? How do we wrestle with that appropriately? Does church make you glad? So first and foremost, just this idea of, of you, right? This personal pronoun, I or me. And you see it all throughout the psalm. David was glad to go to, to God's house. And so although it's somewhat conjecture, there is also the opposite of gladness that is inside the text. Is I was glad when they said, it, there may be somewhat conjecture, but it was their sadness, right? Or at least, or some melancholy, or, or maybe just something Static in David's heart before the invitation came. I don't, we don't know that, right? But this something happened in this bold invitation of let's go. Hey, David, let's roll. Or something like that. Something happened within this bold invitation that changed the trajectory of David's attitude. I don't know what his attitude was before. I just know that after the invitation, gladness came. And it keeps someone from, this invitation keeps someone from self-loathing and provides them an opportunity for something, something else. It's as if God is saying to you and me, I know what's best for you. I know what is good for you. I know what will bring you gladness. And he circles a room like this and he says, here you go. I don't know if you and I are that strategic, right? Or contemplative of that moment that this right here should bring us gladness. We're saved by grace through faith and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Unequivocally, this is what has happened to you. And yet in the same way, he takes your personal con conversion and he places you inside the body of Christ. We all know what decapitation is. This idea of losing your head in order and you are no longer able to survive. And so in the, when the blade hits and you are decapitated, I mean, that is it, right? It is a mess and it is over for you. And yet too many of God's people and understanding the graphic nature of decapitation have forgotten this idea that when we lose body life, right, the torso, that's not as bad. And so this idea that if you lose your, what happens if you lose the body? Is it possible to love Christ and yet be, be detached from the body of Christ? And the answer is no. In the same way that you don't want to live without your head, what God is saying to us this morning is you cannot thrive without the body. Is it possible for you to love Christ and yet be detached from the body of Christ? The answer is no. And of course, there's this next um, the pronoun here. The next audience is this idea of they. Right, whoever they are later on in the psalm, you see that they're these companions of David. They're like, let's go, let's go, let's go. Uh, strangely, even at church though, that people miss out on this idea of community, don't we? Because some people, most people aren't vulnerable enough or don't have the courage enough in order to put themselves out there. What we see in this one little verse, in this one little section of this verse is this courage Right, This vulnerability of, I am going here. This is what I have put my value system on and I want you to go with me. I want you, I want to drag you with me to go here. 
And it's this kind of invitation and this kind of exposure that allows communities to really happen. This song, this psalm starts with an invitation, let's go. This idea of inviting other people and bringing them along is this idea that church really can be wonderful because what we're doing is we're filling in all of the chairs with people that we see and we want to be here and become worshipers together. Some people say you can keep your religion to yourself or that you need to mind your own business when it comes to religious matters, but not so with King David's friends because they were vulnerable and they were strong, and they were courageous to say, you need this, and they were dragging him along. Not only is it invitational, but this this they, later, later on in the psalm, includes the tribes of Israel, meaning that the, the 12 tribes of Israel were all represented here in this moment meaning that all of God's people, like all of the tribes and all of the little kind of little subsets of our city were here and around and could be accounted for. That means that carpenters and PhDs and teachers and, and, and homeschool moms and, and nurses and all of the things, all of the tribes and all of the subsections of our society can be represented here. This is not a private dinner party in which you invite your, only your best friends. No, this tent is large and amazing and big. And all the tribes and all of the people groups of our city can be and should be represented here. The tribes mean that we need to become a diverse community in which we look to our left and right and say, we may not agree on everything, but that is okay. It is awesome for public school students and homeschool students to sit next to one another. It's okay for uh, um, State of Franklin Health Associates, right? And, And ballad people to sit next to one another. It's okay for the University of Tennessee and all of your fan base to sit next to other teams, right? That might win on occasion. It's okay to share this type of space with one another. They encouraged and they were all represented. And of course, the Lord is the third audience because it is to all glory be to God. That is why you have gathered. Everything else is auxiliary to that. We have come to gather to lift up God's name fully and completely. That's why we pray in the name of Jesus. That's why we were about to go and take of the Lord's table. That's why we sit underneath God's word. It's all unto him. He designed us for us. He knows what is best for us. He designed us to breathe in oxygen, right? And excel. This is what we do. He um, created gravity for us to stay on on the ground and he also created this idea of an assembly a gathering for our good there is this wonderful uh, nature term called confluence or or a better way to put it is where waters meet it's where a tributary or a stream or a ri- river they all come together 
And so this is what we're looking like when you see the great Mississippi River or if you see the Ohio River or you go down into the Colorado River, you see all that water moving it and yet you need to understand this, this water's meat or this, this idea of confluence is this idea that all of those waters came in from some source. This is the picture of the pilgrims descending onto Jerusalem. And I know what you're saying. Spencer, you can't tell me what to do right? I'm my own person. I can make my own decisions, right? You can't, you can't put all this pressure on me. And I agree. This sermon can't be shame-based or like, hey, you know, I'll be disappointed if you don't show up next Sunday, right? That's not going to get anybody anywhere. But in the title of this psalm is it says, this is a decree from King David. It's as if God wanted to command us to think more fully about this. So think about it. All right, number three, this is our last point, is this idea of an institution. All right, the idea of an institution. So verse nine, or verse one says, let us go to the house of the Lord. That's verse one. And then the bookend, verse nine, how this, the psalm ends is for the sake of the house of the Lord, I will seek your, uh, your good. I want you to just do a quick browse of this, just the psalm. And I just want you to look at all the substantive elements within Jerusalem. There's gates and there's walls and there's houses and there's things of just, and there's tribes. There's just literal things of substance there. But all of these elements, when they all are put together, these are the things that make and define and protect what the gathering could be. Now there's very few words more unpopular than the word institution right? I mean, it's just, you just look at it and you're like, ugh, what is that thing? And most people, when they think about this word, right, they think of a structure that is too cold and too rigid and lacks all personality whatsoever, right? So if you were institutionalized, you're like, "Uh uh-uh, no way. In fact, there is a, a, a pejorative out there that says the institutionalized religion is actually the most negative thing that you can say about what we do. So why would I bring that up in this psalm, knowing that it is such an off-putting word? Well, the church has to be organized as well as an organism. The organization of it allows the organism to actually work. Most Christians are put off by the picture of a church becoming too bureaucratic or too perfunctory, meaning just like we just get junk done and and becoming the thing that organizations become. However, in an article that I'll send you if you want, Andy Crouch, who is a well-known Christian author, he says, and I quote, that institutions are essential for human flourishing. Institutions are essential for human flourishing. Give me an example or a pattern of human nature and behavior that has something that is strong and good. And what he says is, I will always show you an institution that is pushing that thing forward. And he gives us just a simple example of the idea of football, right? So there is an actual artifact named football and it's made of leather and it's stitched together and you're just able to give it. That's the artifact football. But then there's an entire apparatus called football that is very, very different from the artifact of the football. 
the cultural phenomenon that is known as football, that is the thing that we are all talking about, not the artifacts or the very thing of leather. So all the things that we know of behaviors and beliefs and patterns within the society around football is not the artifact, but the idea of football. None of us have been impacted by something made of leather in the same way that we have been impacted by the institution of football. Crouch then goes on to say something so bold. He says, the most significant human experiences occur at the heart of institutions. Human flourishing and institutions come together. To further the football illustration, he asks, so when is the last time you literally lost your mind when you saw a quarterback drop back in the pocket, throw a wonderful, beautiful pass, watch a wide receiver, catch it, right? And run and score for the winning touchdown. When's the last time you either stood up like this because it was your guy who caught the ball or you did this because it was your guy that just got burnt? I've been on the both sides of that, that exact play. But when is the last time you lost your mind in a moment like that? And he says, You've probably not shown any excitement as a mom overlooking her husband and her son throwing the football in the backyard. You see the athleticism of a dad's pass, right? And the athleticism of a son's catch may be exactly the same. But the reason you lost your mind, the reason you stood up in your chair, the reason that you spent the money, the reason you carved out three hours, the reason that you were able to do something was not the artifact or even athleticism. It was an institution called football that you got immersed into. And so there's coaches and there's Megatron screens and then there's crowds and there's vendors and there's hot dogs and then there's like chants and there's a band and there's grass and there's a crowd and there's joy and it's just like you go on and on and on. You're like, that's what I want to be a part of. And it's all because there's an apparatus that uplifts an athletic play of a pass and a catch that's different than what your sons do in the backyard. So we can't be that put off by the idea of institution because what God has constructed in this gathering is just this building and this energy and this confluence in which things just drift in and out that builds and builds and builds. Can you worship God in your living room with your Bible open? Absolutely, 100%. Can you worship the Lord in your living room with your Bible open and call it church? The answer is no, because there's more to church than just religious dialogue. There's a confluence of personalities and spiritual gifts and prayer and response and invitation. And there's something that happens maybe sporadically and you weren't expecting it because God knows what we need. And he knows that we need to gather with God's people more often than not. So I know what you're asking. What if I'm not glad? What if I wasn't that glad this morning? What should I do? 
the encouragement is to simply go back to Psalm 122 and just read it, to meditate on that, to ask yourself, do you love what God loves? And lastly, do you trust him that he knows what you need more than you know what you need? Psalm 122 says, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem built as a city that is bound firmly together to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel to give thanks to the name of the Lord. There, thrones of judgment were set, thrones of the house of David. Pray for peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love him. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord, I will seek your good. Let us pray. And so Lord, help us to seek the good of the gathering. Help us to understand why we gather more fully and completely. King Jesus, you have got given us just a little time together to open up your word, to sense something that we may not have sensed or even thought about before. I pray that you press into our hearts now and that we would be unafraid of the hard why questions. Why do we gather here this morning? What was our motivation? And I pray that over the course of 10 weeks that you will move our hearts from potentially being overly dutiful in our attendance to more delight, knowing that you know what is best for us and what is best for us is for us to know each other's names, to pray for one another, to sit underneath the preaching of God's word, to pray in Jesus's name, to gather around the table of God, to be able to sense the belief that you are doing something in our midst. God, we believe it. Where two or more are gathered, you are here. Now do something in us. I pray that you do something in us this morning. Got to pray for two sets of people this morning. Set number one are people who are so very faithful to attend even on vacation some they find a church to attend and in this attendance lord they are so very faithful to your word i pray for them this morning that you would give them that you would stoke their fire and they would stoke the motivation that they have come to be glad in you a second group of people i pray for are people that have potentially um not seeing the gathering as an ultimate good or even a common grace around us. I pray that in a strong way that, Lord, that we would continue to go back to Psalm 122 and ask the hard questions of our own hearts. I pray that we are unafraid of some of the answers. I pray that you give us great boldness to step into a journey together uh, this semester. Lord Jesus, we are all gonna stand and we're all gonna partake around the table. I pray that this movement of unity would be enough to get us up each and every Sunday because we are saying in a unified voice that we believe in you more than we believe in ourselves. And it's in your name we pray, amen.